Hello, and a warm welcome to my Asthma Spotlight podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Levy. I'm a family doctor with a special interest in asthma. My aim is to help people with asthma and also their caregivers to understand more about this disease and how to stay safe. I will share lots of information about asthma. However, I will not be able to answer any personal medical questions for which you should really consult your own doctor. The opinions I express in the Asthma Spotlight podcast are my own and they are not intended as and shall not be understood or construed as medical, health or professional advice of any kind. Please do see the disclaimer details in the podcast description. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome, everybody, to today's podcast, uh, the Asthma Spotlight podcast. And I'm delighted and really honored to be joined today by really by one of my heroes in asthma, and that's Professor Richard Beasley, who is a professor of medicine in New Zealand. So hello, Richard, and welcome to this podcast episode. Good evening, Mark, and it's, it's a great pleasure to join you this evening. Thanks. So can we start by you introducing yourself and telling us a bit about the work that you do? Yes, so uh, I'm Richard Beasley and I'm based in Wellington in New Zealand and I'm currently Director of the Medical Research Institute of New Zealand. And uh, I suppose I've been an asthma researcher for almost 40 years now and uh, for me choosing asthma um, to devote my research career towards was really, um, well, it wasn't a hard decision because asthma is such a problem in New Zealand and internationally. Uh, and in terms of New Zealand, we had epidemics of asthma mortality at the time I was training. Um, asthma is a very common disease and it's got a very high burden. Uh, so it was it was the obvious choice for me as a respiratory physician um, in terms of uh, undertaking clinical research was really to investigate ways in which we could reduce the burden of asthma, uh, both in New Zealand and internationally. Well, I remember so clearly, the first time I became aware of you was your publication in 1989, uh, together with uh, Stephen Holgate on asthma management plans. 
and how that really changed the way that we managed asthma. You highlighted that the use of peak flow was so valuable in helping people to adjust their treatment and uh, modify the way that they were controlling their asthma. So why do you think there's been such a move away from the use of peak flow um, over the last 39, 40 years? Yes, well, certainly we were of the view that peak flow was the optimal way in which to recognise the severity of your asthma um, and know when to seek medical review in a severe attack. And so the management plans we developed really gave two options. Patients could both look at the symptoms and interpret their symptoms, but also be guided by peak flow monitoring. And uh, those were our initial plans. And uh, it was really also based on the philosophy that it was the, really giving the patient the guidance to self-manage their asthma was the crucial thing um, because the key factor in terms of a bad outcome in asthma and asthma attack was a patient not recognising how severe their asthma was and delaying seeking medical review. So, so we developed this plan that gave patients the option of both symptoms and peak flow uh, and it was shown to be very effective uh, in reducing risk. And I think somewhat to our surprise, the subsequent studies showed that you could essentially get a very similar result just by giving patients guidance relating to their symptoms, which didn't mean that some patients wouldn't benefit from peak flow monitoring as well. But in terms of a sort of a universal plan for most patients, actually just following their symptoms, in particular how much of their reliever was taking, was likely to be adequate to guide them when to seek medical review. Yeah, well, it certainly was a groundbreaking publication, which, which, uh, as I say, was the first, and it also changed the way we managed asthma. And so, I suppose that brings us on to two things, really. You've you've done some wonderful work in New Zealand, and um, and also um, had had major influence internationally. And so, could you start by summarising the reason why asthma is so important in terms of public health and? Um, as a research priority in New Zealand at the moment? Yes, so we really look at I mean, it's a research priority for both historical and current reasons. I mean, historically, we'd had epidemics of asthma deaths related to specific asthma treatments um, and over-reliance on reliever therapy rather than uh, focusing on preventive treatment. Um, but I think more generally, asthma is a very common disease. I mean, I think one in eight New Zealand school children and about one in 10 adults are receiving treatment for asthma. And it's still a very frequent cause of hospital admission. And although asthma deaths are now relatively uncommon, um, they're still devastating when they occur. Um, so I think from both in terms of the prevalence, but also the morbidity and the risk with severe attacks, um, it remains one of the major health problems in New Zealand and also in many other countries um, such as the United Kingdom. Yeah, and as you say, um, uh, asthma deaths are, are really devastating, and also many of them are, are found to be um, preventable, certainly in my experience in the UK. But maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. And so you mentioned that people um, are finding that they're, or that you're finding that people are able to use their symptoms to guide their treatment. And that brings us on to the main reason why I wanted you to, to join me today. And that was to talk about the new approach to asthma management. And um, you're probably aware that I'm a member of the, the Global Initiative for Asthma, GINA, and we published um, 
new groundbreaking recommendations in 2019 that um, everyone with asthma should be prescribed an inhaled corticosteroid either regularly or as needed. So can you tell us a bit about um, what we mean by anti-inflammatory reliever treatment and what's the background to the development of this treatment? So um, anti-inflammatory reliever therapy is the use of a combination inhaler that has both an inhaled steroid or preventive drug as well as a reliever medication. Uh, and so that is used as a reliever either on its own or in addition to maintenance preventive treatment. And I think we've really come across this um, form of the strategy for treating asthma from a number of directions. And I think we're coming for it, first of all, due to recognizing the risks of using what we call a short-acting beta agonist, a reliever medication, commonly known as a blue inhaler um, for reliever. And uh, we've been aware for, well, well over 50 years that there are not only that, although they are highly effective drugs in relieving the airflow obstruction that causes asthma symptoms, that they do have risks. And they do have risks in terms of their long-term use gradually increasing the severity of the patient's asthma, but also when overused in a severe attack, um, have risks in terms of increasing the risk of a bad outcome and in particular mortality on occasions. And so we've been aware of the risks of the over-reliance and overuse of the blue inhaler, the short-acting beta agonist reliever inhaler, for a long time. And, we've, but it's, and it's been quite confronting, I think, to doctors to know you're prescribing a drug that not only has major benefits, but also has um, potential risks. Um, and I think that it has been confronting, and it's only been acceptable as an approach on the basis that there was no alternative. So if we now go to another strand of evidence, and that is that we've known for a long time now that the inhaled corticosteroid drugs are very effective in turning off the asthma process. Uh, they have anti-inflammatory effects. And if used regularly, um, they can markedly reduce the risk of severe asthma and severe asthma attacks. But we really have a real problem there in that many, if not most, asthma patients over time become very infrequent in the way they use their inhaled steroid drugs. And many patients actually stop taking them altogether. Um, and so we have this very effective form of treatment, but we have real difficulty in actually having a system whereby patients can obtain the benefit from them. And so I think if we take those two strands together, the idea came forward that, well, perhaps if you put the inhaled steroid together with the reliever, you will then ensure the patients will take, will receive some anti-inflammatory reliever inhaled corticosteroid therapy on most days or certainly on the days in which they use their medication as a reliever. But also I think the really clever thing is that you can titrate the dose of inhaled corticosteroid preventer drug by using the vehicle of the reliever so that when patients' asthma gets worse and they actually need more preventer, they receive it because they're getting it with their reliever drug, which they're using more often. And so really, the concept is very simple. And I, I personally find it very deeply disappointing that it took the respiratory community, including the pharmaceutical industry, so long to realize that this was such a simple and likely effective way of treating asthma, not only in terms of greater benefit to the patient, 
but reducing the risk of the otherwise standard simple blue reliever inhaler therapy. I've been around a very long time. And in the early 80s, we had a product in the United Kingdom called Ventide, which is a combination of an inhaled corticosteroid with salbutamol, which is one of the short-acting blue uh, reliever drugs that you were talking, blue inhaler reliever drugs you were talking about. And that went out of fashion. I think it was intended for use with teenagers originally who, who were yeah. reluctant to take their medication regularly. And so the pharma industry have been aware of this idea for a long time, but it's taken a long time, as you say, for them to uh, bring this to, to the market, uh, following research which you and others have been involved in. And so you spoke about um, the risks of the regular use of the blue inhalers, the short-acting beta agonists. So um, could we start with the advantages of this um, anti-inflammatory reliever therapy, or so-called air therapy? Yes. So I think the overwhelming advantage is that it reduces the risk of a severe attack of asthma. So if you have a patient who's simply on a short-acting beta agonist reliever blue inhaler, um, and you switch them across um, to a two-in-one combination inhaler that has an inhaled corticosteroid and the fast-onset but long-acting beta agonist called, called formotorol, if you simply switch the patient across, you'll reduce their risk of a severe attack by over 50%. Um, and that's, that's a huge, a hugely effective um, form of therapy um, and a marked reduction in risk. And if you then go to the sort of the more severe end of the asthma spectrum, and you have a patient who's on, who has moderate or severe asthma and is on a, a maintenance, regular scheduled preventive drug, and you simply switch them across from the blue inhaler to once again this two-in-one ICS formoterol reliever, you can reduce the risk of a severe attack by about one-third. So the benefit applies across the spectrum of asthma severity in both adults and adolescents, although unfortunately we don't yet have sufficient data uh, in terms of children. A 50% reduction in severe attacks, which... Um, really means also a marked reduction in the risk of dying from asthma. And um, from your from your research, um, you've, you've clearly shown that you do get a reduction in um, severe attacks. Now, why do you think this treatment is working to do that where the blue inhaler treatment was not? Yeah. So I think the, the basic reason is that as a patient's asthma, as they develop a severe attack of asthma and the inflammation in the airways and the swelling becomes more severe, a patient needs a greater dose of their um, preventer inhaled corticosteroid. And because it's within the reliever inhalers, the patient takes more reliever inhaler, they're titrating upwards the required greater dose of inhaled corticosteroid. And there's often quite a window of opportunity of a number of days while this process is going on and it gives the chance to actually reverse the asthma attack before it becomes so severe that you may require urgent medical care. Okay, so we come back to a point that we were talking about earlier. Um, by the time somebody's getting symptoms, their airflow um, is, is often obstructed quite significantly. And so do you think that um, the added use of peak flow might have any additional benefit 
in guiding people when to take the anti-inflammatory reliever treatment? I well, think I think one of the sort of the the, the um, fortunate sort of feature of this way of treating uh, a severe attack is that probably the increased use of the reliever is not only an effective way to titrate the dose of inhaled steroid, but it's actually the predictor of the requirement for more inhaled corticosteroid. Now, no one's really looked at whether the use of a peak flow within the system leads to greater benefit, but I think it really represents an alternative to peak flow um, by using the reliever use as not only as both a predictor of risk, but also the solution in terms of greater titration of treatment. Um, of course, you, you did mention there are two kinds of anti-inflammatory reliever treatment. The one is where somebody is using maintenance in her corticosteroid with a reliever, and then they use that same drug for relief, which we call MART or maintenance and reliever treatment. And then there's the other kind where people are using the anti-inflammatory reliever treatment on demand or as needed. Um, and so are there any disadvantages of this form of treatment compared to the the old way of treating asthma where somebody's asked to take their in, in anti-inflammatory drug regularly? I think uh, perhaps putting that question around the other way, I think the advantage of it, you get the greatest benefit if you use it within the structure of a self-management plan. Um, and that's quite strongly evidence-based because the clinical trials that showed benefit actually used the self-management plans as part of the study protocol to implement this regimen. But I think the disadvantages, there are a number. Uh, the first is that there's an insufficient evidence base in children, and children have a really high burden of asthma, uh, particularly in terms of hospital admissions. Uh, and so that is a priority for treat for further research. Um, We've got very limited evidence in terms of patients who have both asthma and COPD, um, and that um, is really a, an area that also requires further research. We also don't have sufficient evidence to use it in the emergency department setting where salbutamol remains the preferred emergency treatment, either with a meter dose inhaler and a spacer um, or through a nebulizer. So I think the other um, disadvantage is that we have a limitation of products and devices. Um, and so the use of a two-in-one inhaler can either be with an inhaled steroid and a fast onset and long-acting beta agonist, of which formoterol is, is the agent for that. And most of the evidence relates to this combination, particularly the budesonide formoterol combination, the other more recent combination is the use of um, an inhaled steroid with a short-acting beta agonist, which is also fast onset, um, of which the inhaled corticosteroids, salbutamol or albuterol in the state's combination product, um, there was evidence, new, recent evidence for its benefit. And in fact, this product has recently been um, made available and approved by the FDA for use in the United States. Um, so... We, we really need more combinations to be tested and then on the basis of that evidence with different devices made available because it's likely over time that some patients may prefer or be best suited with one particular combination or the other. Thank you. That's, that's very clear. And it would be really good if we could persuade more healthcare professionals to change the way that they're managing asthma. And as you said, 
people are reluctant to change, especially yeah. after 40 years of using a particular way of managing, uh, in fact, more than 40 years of using the blue inhalers for relief. Yeah, and I think I think that's an important point, Mark, um, in that I think entrenched clinical practice is a barrier to the use of this therapeutic regimen. Uh, and um, the barrier occurs at many levels. Uh, it occurs in terms of a doctor who's entrenched in their own personal clinical practice, patients who may prefer to stay on the blue inhaler um, as part of their treatment regimen, and in some jurisdictions, there may be limited access or availability, either from because of regulatory approval um, or in terms of cost and availability. Um, so there are a number of barriers to the implementation of this regimen. Okay, so now I'm aware that you've done a lot of uh, of work in New Zealand to improve the way that us was managed. And so what, what are you doing at the moment that... Um, is changing the way that healthcare professionals and patients are managing their asthma. Yeah. So uh, in our New Zealand asthma guidelines for adolescents and adults, we made very clear recommendations, which which were modelled on the GINA recommendations that you mentioned from 2019, that uh, for New Zealand we had the availability of the budesonide formoterol combination to one product as a reliever, and we followed the GINA recommendations that this was the preferred reliever across the spectrum of asthma severity for adults and adolescents. And uh, we recommended that it was implemented through the implementation of the asthma self-management plan um, as the optimal way in which you could introduce this regimen. And we we had a very, um, very intensive uh, implementation translational program throughout New Zealand, primarily based in general practice, because in New Zealand, almost all asthmatic patients are the primary medical caregiver as a general practitioner. And um, we were intrigued to really follow up how how extensive the implementation, uh, how much implementation actually occurred. And so we did a follow-up 18 months after the guidelines were first promoted uh, widely within New Zealand, and um, there was a dramatic uptake um, uh, in terms of the use of the BDSNIFE for Motorol um, inhaler, um, and we've now followed up more recently in a further 12-month period out um, where it is now the dominant form of, uh, uh, of treatment for, for, for asthma in New Zealand. And I think this has two important points. I mean, I think at a sort of a um, local level, I think it shows the the very high standard of medical care in New Zealand from general practitioners, that they were um, very adept in changing their standard of clinical practice um, to adopt these evidence-based recommendations. But I think more widely, I think it has implications globally, and it shows that uh, it is possible despite entrenched practice, to actually adopt um, a major change in the approach to asthma based on very strong clinical evidence um, and that both um, doctors and patients clearly um, accept and prefer this as a form of treatment. Um, and we should perhaps not be surprised by this because uh, in some of the studies that have looked at what have been the patient's preferences? And in one of our studies, we asked the patients um, who 
used this anti-inflammatory reliever therapy regimen for 12 months in a clinical trial, whether they preferred to stay on this treatment or go back to the traditional form of asthma management. And 90% of them said they preferred the anti-inflammatory reliever therapy regimen. And, you know, I think we perhaps shouldn't be surprised by this because if, you know, if you're offered the choice of one two-in-wing combination inhaler that you just take either as a reliever or as a maintenance and reliever treatment, or you have two separate inhalers and one you take as a reliever and one you have to take on a regular basis even if you feel you don't need it, you know, it's not surprising the choice that the asthmatic patients will take. I'm very pleased to hear that you were able to get the healthcare professionals to adapt to the new um, evidence-based uh, way of treating asthma. And um, I mean, from our experience in the United Kingdom, what I'd really like to know is how, how you were able to persuade the general practitioners. Because in the UK, asthma is also primarily treated in primary care. But in the UK, it's, it's moved more towards nurse management of asthma. And at the moment, much of the asthma is managed by people without any training in asthma. Yeah. So how, how did you persuade the, the doctors in particular to change the way that they managed asthma? Yeah, so although there's um, shared care between doctors and nurses in New Zealand in terms of asthma care, the primary responsibility for asthma management in New Zealand is general practitioners. And they view asthma as a priority because we've had such terrible history of asthma um, in New Zealand, uh, including the epidemics of asthma mortality related to the overuse of two specific blue inhalers. And so I think that you had a very well-educated and motivated um, workforce who, uh, when the evidence became available that there was an alternative, um, that they were very comfortable in adopting this change to follow evidence-based medicine. Uh, and this was a national program, uh, and uh, so this was widely across the wide, wide, widely across in terms of clinical practice in New Zealand. Oh, well, it's a lesson for for other countries, and particularly for the UK. Um, so I'd like to move on now to talk a little bit about asthma deaths. You. You're probably aware that I've been involved um, first in the National Review of Asthma Deaths in the UK and more recently over the last four or five years as expert witness in um, asthma death inquests where many children have died from asthma. And the recurrent themes really are that um, there's a failure of doctors to recognize the severity of asthma as a disease or the potential severity of asthma as a disease. And also... Um, not prescribing preventer or controller treatment. And we're still seeing many people being treated with excess um, short-acting beta agonists. And one of the children who died had 50 prescriptions for a blue inhaler in the year before she died. And so um, what are your views on, on asthma deaths at the moment? Why, why are we still seeing preventable deaths due to this disease um, worldwide? But probably more particularly in the UK nowadays. So, I mean, when I read your report, which I think was so important internationally um, as such a contemporary snapshot of causation of uh, death and asthma, what struck me was how similar your findings were to the mortality surveys that were done in both New Zealand and the United Kingdom and many other countries 40, 50 years ago. 
um, that in some respects things had not changed, that people were still dying for the same reason, as you mentioned, lack of recognition that they were at risk in terms of their long-term management, inadequate use of maintenance and held corticosteroids, and this over-reliance of beta-agonist drugs in the severe attack with the delay that went with it. And so I think that really does give us a template by which to, in some respects, do a checklist in terms of the, the way we approach asthma management today. And I think, uh, you know, very clearly, those features that you mentioned and I repeated uh, can be addressed by anti-inflammatory reliever therapy. Uh, that you, um, the amount of patient users can be a guide to uh, the severity of their asthma long term. You can address, largely address, but not completely resolve the issue of non-compliance uh, in terms of regular use of inhaled steroids and titrating the dose when a patient needs it. And through an asthma self-management plan that goes with the AIR strategy, you can provide guidance to a patient uh, in terms of when to recognising they're developing a severe attack and need medical review. So um, so I think in some respects we've come a full circle from 40, 50 years ago, and we now have a very simple, practical strategy by which we can address these core features that put patients at risk of mortality. That's a wonderful summary of uh, how this treatment can really effective. So we've spoken about a number of things and um, is there anything that you wanted to add that we haven't discussed in terms of asthma management? No, I mean I think that the evidence relating to anti-inflammatory reliever therapy is, a, is perhaps the biggest paradigm shift uh, that uh, we've had in asthma over many decades and I find it intriguing that in most other fields in clinical medicine management is becoming more complicated far more complex and difficult. And here we have asthma where it's actually becoming simpler and more practical. Uh, and, you know, if I was to sort of to finish on any key messages, I think the challenge for healthcare professionals is actually really simple. That in these days of evidence-based medicine, if we believe in evidence-based medicine, we need to be aware of the evidence of the benefits and the reduction in risk with anti-inflammatory reliever therapy. But we need to not only be aware of the evidence, we need to know how to implement it in our clinical practice, which I think ideally is through a management plan. And we need to change our practice accordingly. And if practitioners do not follow this pathway, I think that that really is confronting and challenging in terms of their own personal commitment to evidence-based medicine. I think for clinician researchers, I think we should not forget about children who have a a real burden from asthma, um, or the elderly who have COPD as well. And we need some robust landmark randomized control trials to see if we can translate the current evidence and extend it to these other high-risk groups. And in terms of patients, I think the message is that this is a real breakthrough. Um, and as I mentioned, for many, it may be considered the biggest paradigm shift we've had over recent decades. And I think you know, it may be you need to ask your doctor or your nurse whether you are suitable for this regimen. And if not, why not? Um, so you can also obtain the benefits and the reduction in risk associated with it. So, you know, I think in some respects where 
we're well on the path to this becoming um, the standard approach in clinical practice globally, uh, but we have we have further work to do. That's a fantastic summary. Thank you so much. And I think your point that if if you really believe in evidence-based medicine, why aren't you implementing the clear evidence that we've got in Asman? I think Albert Einstein said something like, um, if you're expecting a new result, why do you keep doing the same thing over and over again? So thank you so much, uh, Professor Richard Beasley. It's been an absolute pleasure and such an enlightening discussion. I've really enjoyed this uh, half hour with you. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you very much, Mark. It's been a real pleasure. And and finishing, I'd like to acknowledge the wonderful work that you and your colleagues do with the GINA strategy, which I think has provided such a strong evidence-based uh, recommendations by which we can practice medicine and asthma. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll share that with my colleagues. I'm sure they'll be delighted to hear that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you found this helpful, and I hope you did, please click the like and the follow buttons and share this podcast. Please do send me any feedback or questions to my email address, asthmaspotlight at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to answer these in future episodes.